Hello and welcome to a new episode of Personal Threads, the show where we delve deep into the style evolution of our guests. And of course, while we're there, we do like to have a little chat about the fashion landscape in a fast-changing, complex world and just get our guests' observations as to where their viewpoints are in sustainability and modern progressive style. Uh, Today's guest is a very unique talent, fully equipped with skill and creativity and what I always love has the power and confidence to fully embrace self-expression and to understand a fashion choice and aesthetic that not only suits him but empowers him too. Zach Pinsent is a bespoke period tailor and designer bringing historical fashions to life maintaining a personal wardrobe of only period style historical clothing which he meticulously recreates from extensive academic research with a firm stance towards sustainable fashion and the importance of self-expression. This commitment to historical fashion and design, coupled with his expertise in the area, has led Zach and his work being featured in contemporary publications such as Vogue, Elle and Vanity Fair. And that recent BBC documentary was an awfully good, fascinating watch as well. Zach, lovely to have you with us. How are you doing? I'm not bad, thank you, Scott. Just trying to avoid the pitter-patter of the rain outside. Yes, yes. Autumn comes early here in London, it would seem. Um, Now, obviously, with personal threads, we're interested in those sort of little moments along the way, these sort of key turning points or key influences that sort of build what we define when we look in the mirror as our own personal style. When we look back and go, this suits me. This is this is how I feel good about myself. Now, Sitting here with you today, I think it's important to sort of top the interview with discussing exactly what you're wearing. So please share this incredible vision in front of me. What are you wearing? Okie dokie. So um, I'm wearing a full linen ensemble, um, generally for a gentleman sort of around 1810 or so, but I've taken a couple of liberties. So linen (laughs) towel coat, hussar linen waistcoat, and then uh, Hazar pantaloons, uh, which have a most interesting construction because they're designed without an inseam or an outseam, but with one seam up the back. Now, this was used historically so that you could do embroidery and braid work on the fronts Clever. and the sides, exactly, and avoid the bulk of a seam, and you could fit it far better. And it's really interesting, and it's literally called uh, Le Pantaloon de la Hazard. Um, which is oh, fascinating. How elegant. And also just the colour palette here, because we've got a real sort of cornflower blue and a pastel blue and the socks and the shoes and the starch collar and the cravat and the gloves and the top hat. Talk to me about everything. So in a weird way, you might say I look like a pharaoh and bull colour chart. <laughs> um, I love blue. Blue's a wonderful colour um, and historically it's always stuck around. What's wonderful is that the, uh, the pantaloons that I'm wearing, they're actually made from a 1900 to about 1920... French bedsheet, so it's really yeah, but it's but it's actually dyed with real indigo, which you so use you, a lot of... you dyed that and you made that piece. No, 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 no. Uh, the, this was dyed already, so ah. in the nineteen twenties and everything like that. Um, and what's wonderful is that when you dye with natural indigo, it's actually far more stable uh, than than a lot of synthetic dyes because it really gets into the fibre in a completely different way. So this has gone through dozens and dozens of washes and it hasn't faded 
at all yet, which is wonderful. And that's the joy of linen. I have to just say as well, when you walked in today, knowing that you've travelled all the way from Brighton, you sort of, we're here in the heart of Soho, you walk through the streets with your head held high, looking as beautifully finished and polished as you do. It sort of takes me back to those early days of for many young men and young women sort of branching out on their style journey, but having the conviction and the confidence and the determination and a bit fearless mm. to actually, I think it's reported that you were sort of 14 and you ceremoniously burnt your last yeah. pair of denim jeans yeah. and then started this journey in wearing historical clothing and never actually to this day have worn anything modern since. Exactly. It, it's really, well, to, to take it back to sort of its, its primordial soup, um, every child loves dressing up and my parents just never really told me to stop. Um, <laughs> and I was... Incredibly influenced by um, Bela Lugosi um, and Christopher Lee's Dracula and that whole gothic style mm. and that sense of formality. Because especially sort of growing up in the 90s, it was that thing of what was only available were jeans and T-shirts and things. And yeah. there was nothing that was aspirational. Yeah. And then, of course, you have um, Wild uh, with Stephen Fry and it's mm. those colour palettes, that formality and the period style, which really sort of got me into it all. And then I tried sort of buying vintage pieces and things, but it wasn't really until I hit about 14 or so when we were moving house and I found my great-great-grandfather's three-piece suits. Wow. And they fit me like a glove. Oh, amazing. Which is amazing. Um, and I actually... Um, so that I'd... opening the box mm, and finding mm. those suits, talk to me about that actual moment, because it really was a gear change and it changed it, your life very Hugely. much. And your career Hugely. and just how you dress every single day. It was an absolute gift in the fact that I'd suddenly been given my basis, my platform, my mm. foundation. I could build things on top of that because before I was trying to sort of mix jeans and a Victorian waistcoat and just mm. not really... I was disappointed in the fact I couldn't do more and do it properly. And to I didn't do the want, whole look. And I didn't want to do it, you know, half-assed, really. What were you sort of studying at school? I'm trying to get mm. into the young Zach's <laughs> mind about sort of what... Were you, were you doing history of art? Were you really into history? Well, and hugely into history at school. Um, not so much into the essay writing, but <laughs> very much into history. Uh, and, and actually, one of my um, big pieces I did for GCC and everything was looking at the portraiture and everything of, of um, Elizabeth I and everything and talking about the symbolism behind the clothing and all of this. And it's something that really hadn't been explored or really taught to me at school mm -hmm. and people didn't really feel as enthused about it as I was, where I was thinking, you've got to remember that this is from a time period where people can't necessarily read so well or at all. And then you've got a visual medium and, mm. as they say, a picture paints a thousand words and what is this painting trying to tell us? Yes. And that was a real moniker of understanding how these things all come together and what clothing can actually mean, which then was by extreme contrast to the fact that the clothing myself and my peers were wearing meant and said nothing. Yeah, quite right. And when you were sort of studying and looking at this this particular area, how did Regency and Georgian sort of come to you? How did you know that that was your particular period? Well, I started off with Victorian, simply because, well, Victorian and Edwardian, because you could still find things in charity shops and vintage shops that fit the era and everything, and that was workable. Mm. It wasn't until I was actually invited to my first 
Regency ball and I had nothing to wear that was period appropriate. So I wore some 1920s evening pumps, some white socks, and then a 1915 khaki cavalry pantaloon, which actually worked quite well, um, an antique silk uh, waistcoat from the 1850s, moire with some embroidery on, which I picked up at like a car boot sale for literally nothing. It was amazing. Um, and then on top, a tailcoat I found on eBay from... It, it was an ex-BBC costume one, apparently. And it was this sort of crunchy velvet and everything. And it was just enormous. And it was far too big. So basically, I cut up the seams. And then using my grandma's, like, singer sewing machine, the hand-powered kind, I simply went with it and took it in at the seams and tried to work with it. And I had an antique top hat as well. Combine that all together into actually not too bad a first go at it. And the bug really hit because once I realised that I could begin to make stuff, then the possibilities are quite literally endless. And so, you know, that that discipline, I guess, you know, we all can look back. I can certainly dial up a sort of bit of a goth stage or a bit more kind of like 90s clubbing stage. You know, we get, went through trends, I guess. Whereas exactly. you landed in a certain sort of period and it has therefore become your visual DNA. It's what you stand for. So what has kept you so enchanted with dressing in historical clothing, do you think? I think mainly because there's this bizarre misconception that people think the past was boring or dull um, or not very colourful. In fact, when, when you look at the use of dyes and fabric swatches and whatnot from 200 years ago to compared to today, we're incredibly monochrome and incredibly boring. Uh, for example, uh, 1809, one of the really fashionable uh, materials for a man's waistcoat is this thick silk pile shag in leopard print. So it's wow. bright orange with these black dots on, but you never see Mr Darcy wearing anything like that. No. So it's that interesting thing of there's the way in which history is presented to us and the way in which history actually, actually is. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I'm thinking as well, you know, I, I hear from doing a little bit of research that, you know, once you hit sort of sixth form, you were going into school every single day in historical clothing. And I'm just interested about what were the references? Like, you know, a lot of other teenagers at the time might have been into Coldplay or, you know, just listening to different sort of music of the 90s. What films were you watching? What literature were you reading? What posters were on your mm. bedroom wall? Who were your sort of barometers of style? I loved going to the library and delving through all of the period dramas and interesting films, like things I hadn't really heard of. And uh, so A Room with a View, Anna and the King, oh, um, Wild, um, gosh, so many. Uh, oh, Kind Hearts and Coronets, one of my favourite films. Um, it's just so camp and so funny. Um, and then, of course, you've got, um, oh, uh, gosh, Angels and Beatles, and then Age of Innocence. Um, and... Part of me sort of is a bit upset that what happened to that great big splurge of all these amazing period dramas happening that are adapted from really interesting books. And then you think, well, what are we doing now? I mean, th there doesn't seem to be that same kind of bringing forth of just beautiful films. Uh, and looking beautiful. Now, mm. what was the reaction that you were getting from your peers, fellow students, teachers? It was mixed. Um, and and there was... And the school were called bananas with you. Well, no, 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 so. no. Um, they were not. Uh, so interestingly, I went into school archives and I printed off the full uniform regulation thing. And I said, OK, 
what am I going against? I'm wearing um, a shirt, I'm wearing a collar, I'm wearing a tie or bow tie, as it says, and I'm wearing a waistcoat, that's fine. Um, and this is sort of where I was sort of trying to do more Edwardian because I couldn't really do Regency or much Victorian. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when it got to the wintry months, I'd put a Victorian frock coat over my suit sort of thing. So there were ways in which I could get around it. Yeah. Um, and there was no problem with hats either in the school uniform. And then they were going, oh, well, no one else. And they tried to, they did actually try <laughs> to quash me entirely. Really? Yeah, yeah, it was quite sad. Um just because I was bending the rules differently to everyone else. Yeah. I wasn't trying to do the Uggs and yeah. the tracksuit bottoms and everything, yeah. which is fine and valid. Yeah. But it but it was that thing of, I'm just trying to be more formal and express myself in a particular way. Yeah. And it got to a point where like teachers were complaining about me to like the head of discipline and all of this. Wow. And it actually got to a point where the, the head of uniform and discipline and everything came to my room and looked through my wardrobe I was there with the uniform regulations going, what rules have I actually broken? Yeah, quite right. Um, what did they say? And they said, yeah, fair enough. You haven't actually broken any rules. It's just that you look so different. And they tried to sort of do this thing of, oh, it needs to look homogenised and looks like a uniform and everything. But no, you get to sixth form, you get to wear your own suits. That's something you explicitly put out and say. Yeah. So either you and stick to your guns with it. Yeah. Exactly. And you want dark suits and things, but yet you're, wear- you're letting... Um, then then people started wearing all sorts of coloured suits and things, and I was wearing the dark suits, and it was like, okay, but the rules are being bent, but you just don't like what I'm doing. Yeah, and it felt quite personal then. It was definitely very personal. And actually, I've heard from teachers since that have either left or, you know, I'm now in better contact with and whatnot, yeah, yeah. that I was actually inspirational to them and it was just a few yeah. few sort of um stuffy ones that were kind of getting in um, the way getting in the I way i mean when we look at it now yeah. i mean what i love as well when i look back of uh, some more research on on your story is that you always talk about your father yeah. being your greatest champion and yeah. actually i've met your pa a few times at mm-hmm. ascot and various other things and he's always there just slightly behind you just sort of championing you on he he really is it's um, a delight to absolutely see. amazing yeah absolute stunning amazing man uh, who without him I wouldn't be where I am today and he's always constantly supportive you know being picked up from school there'd be a lot of uh, parents and everything wearing smart casual or full suits and everything and my dad would turn up um, jeans cowboy boots um, <laughs> you know biker jacket band t-shirt or something that was like he didn't realise he was wearing one of his more offensive t-shirts you know where, <laughs> so, so it's a thing of like oh you know so he's never fitted a mould when it came to the school and the issues with that, he was very much behind me on that. But also, he didn't have much of an education and all of this. And he felt intimidated because there were these well-learned institutional people that were saying these things. And he was like, uh, he, he, there was a lot of nervousness mm. from this amazing man. And that almost annoys me more, mm. the fact that they made him feel that way. Because mm-hmm. they talked down to him. Mm-hmm. And it's like... He's a parent for one of the students. They should be focusing on the academic side of things. They shouldn't be worrying about what the hell I'm wearing to school mm-hmm. when it's not actually making any difference. Um, but luckily, things have totally changed now at the school. And some teachers have said, yeah, you kind of forced that. <laughs> and I'm like, OK, good, good. good. I left um, my legacy there. Thank well, you very much. Well, quite right, quite right. 
Um, when when you look obviously at your social feed, um, mm. and I have to say it's such a joy to watch because the, you obviously take a lot of time in each of those posts, and I really enjoyed just the sort of the the, the theatre and the cinematography of it all, and just how you actually bring you know historical clothing to a to a modern click play audience mm. and play it out with such beautiful lighting and post production and all the rest of it is really really well executed. But how did that start? Was that just a sort of way of just documenting a sort of a catalogue, a, a kind of archive of what you're wearing, and then the audience followed. Is that the sort of general approach? Well, um, the the thing is, I've had the same social media, I think, since 2009 or 2012, something like that. Mm-hmm. So if you go way down on my Instagram, you've got ones of me at school, like with a top hat and whatnot. That's I, what I thought it might yeah, have started at school. Exactly. So, so I was just posting as anyone else did, and I didn't expect to have any kind of audience. I mean, I remember the day when I hit like 3,000 followers and I was like, this is insane, this is crazy, <laughs> what is this? And then there was the BBC thing and I was going viral, I couldn't sleep, it was so stressful. I got like 250,000 overnight. I was trending on Japanese Twitter, wow. for goodness sake. The I'm channel's not... now obviously quite sizable. You're sort of sat at yes. around half a million and yeah, that's yeah. quite a big uh, splice of people to have it a conversation is weird. with. It is weird because I feel... With everything that I do, I'm I'm shouting, you know, to a whole town of people or something. It's ridiculous. In fact, I think my dad, my dad looked it up, and I think I've got more followers than the population of Bermuda or something, <laughs> which is bizarre. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't like the sound of that. Oh, um, your pa always there, sort of chanting. <laughs> exactly. Wait a minute. But it's particularly interesting because there is that huge pressure to suddenly change the way you do things, to be more curated, to do this or that. And I'm thinking, no, people follow me because I'm me. I'm not yeah. going to stop the way I do things. Yeah. Um, but there, there is this authenticity to it. It mm. seems like a very genuine transaction. And quite often when people get to the giddy heights up there to half a million, it can start to feel very commercial. Exactly. And, because you're pressured to. Yeah. I get lots of emails all the time about advertising this product, doing this, doing that. And I'm thinking, well, I don't believe in your product. I don't know what it is, really. Yeah. Um, or to sell advertising space. I'm thinking, yeah. no, no. Good for you. I'm only going to do things which... I work with appropriately or I believe in, um, you know, so I've got a couple of things coming up with some heritage organisations and things and charities and stuff where I'm thinking, okay, I have this bizarre large platform. How can I use it for in a way best, that's... Exactly, for exactly. ability to communicate to that volume of people. And I think, obviously, you know, there, there really are zero fashion conversations that are happening now of any worth that are not tiptoeing quite significantly into the debate and the conversation around sustainability. And of course, when I look at you and we're thinking of pre-loved and vintage and circular economy and we've got it all here already, you know, it's really interesting to talk to you about this because, you know, for menswear, which is, you know, for a long way felt a little bit sort of, you know, neglected. Um, this just brings back so much elegance and flamboyance. And it's really exciting, especially when we think of Ascot and occasion wear exactly. and stepping it up a notch. So Pre- precisely. from Zach perspective, when I ask you where you sit on the sort of conversation around sustainability, what would your answer be? Oh, I'm not going to get off my soapbox when I talk about sustainability. (laughs) Um, I'm very much, I want the ability where as much as what I make and do to have as small a carbon footprint as possible. Because it's just, if you start off that way, start as you mean to go on, uh, effectively. And researching the right kind of materials for the right sort of thing. Yeah. So one of my big things I get my soapbox about is cotton. 
Cotton is horrendous for the environment. Mm -hmm. So, for example, to make one white cotton T-shirt requires um, enough drinking water to to give someone for two and a half years. Ideally, the companies and things should take a step with it. Mm. But the world of capitalism, that's probably not going to happen. So you as a consumer need to then think more openly about it and think, okay, before you go out and buy something new, go to a charity shop, look on eBay... Um, or repair something. Well, well, for example, I made this tailcoat back in um, 2018, you know, and I've replaced the cuffs a couple of times. And then I actually repaired a patch on the elbow, which you can barely see. Things are repaired and loved. There are items that belong to King George III and, you know, other roles and things which were patched and repaired. Things it's learning to have that new level of respect for the things that we own. Exactly. Actually, they're not disposable, that actually we buy We're almost custodians of custodians these Custodians of pieces, and hopefully we'll pass them down once we've loved them as exactly. well and give them a whole other lease of life. So talking about, you know, you had you built your social channel mm. sort of accidentally kind of on purpose, but it kind of just did its thing. Mm. And now, of course, you're a tailor. Now, what came first in that in that journey? Was it sort of just the profile piece or were you always sort of tinkering away oh, and building? Always, always um, tinkering away and making things. Uh, I started off uh, making a few bits for myself and then trying to then make things for other people. It was the thing of I started and I bought some commercial patterns and I looked at the results that came out of it and then I looked at things in the museum and I thought, where is the disconnect. Why does this not look like the thing in the museum? So then it was to the National Archives and to all these places to find, you know, 18th and early 19th century tailoring manuals. And this is where the research comes in and you understand the proportions, the use of shape and the drape of things being quite different. And especially when you come from a modern perspective where a lot of things seem to be draped from the shoulder pad and the shoulder, Mm -hmm. generally speaking, Mm -hmm. it it's a very different way of doing it. It's a much more naturalistic and organic thing, especially when there are some patterns which tell you to simply use the rock of the eye, which is basically just draw it and kind of hope for the best, <laughs> which which is great. Um, what's wonderful is that I have clients come to me, um, one of which recently was um, uh, worked in the city, so he'd been in a suit his whole life, mm-hmm. And he wanted to go to a lot more reenactments and historical mm. balls and things. Mm. And he, it started off with a black coat and all of this. And and I was like, well, what's your favourite colour? He's like, well, I really like green. And it's like, well, we can do green. We, we can do green. We can do green. Uh, so so I did him a, uh, a three-piece Georgian ensemble wow. um, with then an alternating waistcoat, but then lined in hot pink. Oh, amazing. Which, well, I suppose you could, he can do anything he wants with his own tailor. Exactly, which is completely period. And those colours were put together. Green and pink were incredibly fashionable. And it's something you actually see come back in the 1940s oh, with, with, that. with digital prints. And nothing looks out of place. It's yeah. the fact that men used to enjoy colour. It was a sign of being fashion conscious mm-hmm. and being aware and being wealthy. Yeah. For example, George Washington... And carried such confidence. Hugely. I mean, George Washington uh, had three um, pink silk suits. And I love that now there is that great big undercurrent of really expressive men's fashion. Yes. And, well, it's actually almost looking quite 70s. Yes. See, 70s are coming back. Yes. And it's interesting. And then in the Regency period, you have the Tudor period coming back, and they do Gothic things as well. So fashion is, is... a wreath. It's not a line. It's completely cyclical. Um, you obviously, with the observation of 
the movement within tailoring. I think, you know, there are our citizens, our menswear clients, our communities mm. who are starting to look more carefully at where they're sort of products are sourced from actually investing in good pieces and I know when I speak to a couple of pals on the row and other tailors they are definitely feeling that there is a real appetite now for menswear and having bespoke pieces made obviously as a tailor would you say that there certainly is there certainly is and actually from from last Ascot, I've had um, several people get in touch with me about waistcoats and things, which I think is wonderful because that, that is really a place where men can shine. Yes. Especially when it comes to something like Ascot. I mean, we we experienced, I think, the hottest Ascot on record yes. uh, on the 24th. And so I made myself a linen waistcoat for it. And what was interesting is that the, the pattern books and these things for um, pieces made from the uh, from about 1900 until today, they all still exist. The patterns are all still there. They can easily be drafted by some of the amazing tailors on the row to give you that vintage look or to perhaps... Because some people have the right shape and the right frame where they suit maybe a 1940s style or something with a higher waist mm-hmm. or, you know... You can play with it. You've got the whole of history to work from. And are you noticing that, you know, your clients are coming to you and they want something that's more of a certain period? Certainly. They look at Ascot and they look at the black and white photos, the iconic photos. And they're like, I kind of want to look like that. But it's men don't, generally speaking, they're afraid to ask questions. And they're always worried about being laughed at or not being seen as appropriate or whatnot. Um, so, So unless you've been going for a long time or you've bought vintage and you're stepping your toe in for the first time or something like that, you'll perhaps rent something and then you'll sort of think, oh, I like that, but I like that a bit more. Yes. Oh, that's and so exciting. I, yeah. I'm like really inspired now. I want to have something made by yeah. you yeah. for Royal Ascot <laughs> next year as their, as their fashion correspondent. So when you're, you know, also outside of the actual tailoring, you're also probably sourcing, mm. you know, you're, you're finding these troves, be it yes. kind of, you know, Instagram or sort of vintage shops or where do you, where do you find all of these pieces from? So, so all the recency stuff and, you know, that's all made by me. But then some of the vintage stuff, it's still about. And there is no one-stop shop. You've got to hunt because it really is a passion, and there are some astonishing collectors and astonishing okay, retailers. Tell us where you go because I'm fascinated because so, so, I um, just so, you know I'd love to know. So I bought a couple of pieces from uh, Victory Vintage, and in fact they kitted my dad out for Goodwood. Oh, did they? and he felt fantastic in it um, because he was wearing proper vintage. Um, and then uh, I bought a couple of things uh, from a lovely chap in New York uh, called Crowley Vintage. Uh, Portobello Road is particularly good. Um, and there are these pop-up things like uh, Frock Me Vintage Fair pops up every now and then. I haven't been in years, but they're always quite good. And what's the what's the price point now? Because I'm you know I'm interested. Is that changing dramatically in regards to people it, being aware of the collateral and the kind of purpose and meaning of these pieces? Some and some. It depends on what size you're looking for mm-hmm. and condition mm-hmm. and all of that. And luckily, being my size, there's many more things in my size but then the later you get sort of from about the 40s onwards you get more generously proportioned pieces and that's fantastic and but those things obviously it's supply and demand uh, so price points can vary anything from 80 pounds for a tailcoat to 300 or 400 pounds for a tailcoat a vintage one yeah um which is cheaper 
than than yeah. buying brand new from bespoke. Absolutely. But also, if you can find a nice vintage one, you can go to a tailor potentially on the row and have things altered. Yes. There's always those little tweaks that you can do, yes. which I think are really important. And make it look bespoke. Exactly, exactly. Uh, because a lot of these things were sort of tailor-made or completely bespoke. And, you know, I've got several ones which are Eden Ravencroft and things like that. And it's wonderful having that heritage there. Uh, how do you describe your style? If you had three words, how do you describe how you step out, Zach Pinsent? I'd say I would call my personal style eccentric Regency gentleman. Because... Life is there to be enjoyed. Yes. And if you're not loving the clothes that you're wearing, you're kind of missing the point. I often have seen you at events and you really do strike a look as you sort of arrive. But there's this enjoyment and it's not showy. It's just this genuine happiness with how well, you look I mean, and the power it, that it gives you. Hugely. It's a huge confidence booster. And and people ask me, um, well, how did you get the confidence? Um, there is no magic wand. And after all, no one cares about you. Like, yeah. like... Uh, not in a nasty Not way. Not in your own, but, how your but, own head plays it out. Exactly. Yeah. People are always worried, oh, what are they thinking? Everyone's rushing around doing their own thing. Yeah. People will maybe look at you for two seconds and get on with their life. Yeah. You can go out there and do things. Yeah. And I found that 99.9999999% of people are delightful and wonderful. And I've very rarely had any problems throughout my so, whole life. So on that, I did see something on one of your posts, which I thought was very brave and very interesting, that there was some altercation or something that happened over a gay pride mm. march. Um, and the lovely thing that I found from your community on, on social, that was a huge amount of support and mm. love that was a, a response and reaction oh. to what happened. So talk to us about that incident. Yeah, I suppose luckily I can't remember much because I was knocked out and concussed and all that jazz, um, which which isn't ideal, um, not, not very pride themed. And people have asked, will it um, affect me or anything? Mm. And I think, well, lightning doesn't strike twice. Mm. What's the chance of it happening again? And after all, having now been gay bashed, I suppose I've ticked that one off my list. Mm. The whole community as a whole has been incredibly supportive, but shocked, I think. And it's Mm. shocked a lot of straight people that I know Mm. because I've always been so confident and Mm. don't say boo to a goose. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I'm quite approachable and I'll talk to anyone. Mm. And they were kind of shocked that, oh gosh, does this happen? Yes, it does happen. Mm. There was the drag queen um, that was attacked outside of McDonald's and then there was that couple mm. that was stabbed in Croydon. Mm. Hate crime has gone up by 300% since 2019. Mm. But prosecutions aren't there because we haven't got the right framework and, good Lord, we know we don't have enough police. And it's that thing of, it's quite a tricky situation and especially when politicians use um, identity politics and everything um, as a battering ram without thinking of the ramifications of these are people's lives you're dealing with. Mm. Um, you know, and by talking about certain people and certain groups in a certain way, it gives some people in, mm. in the community a mental free licence to do what they like, mm. which isn't the case and shouldn't be the case. Mm. But unfortunately, these things happen. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting and eye-opening to... Because I've always been very safe and very, you know, conscious of things around me. But then again, I've walked down, you know, the streets of Glasgow, you know, in the middle of the night and whatnot and never had a problem. And then weirdly enough, I'm in Soho of all places and it happens here. And I'm like, well, that's a bit funny. But 
Uh, I'm very sorry to see that, you know. but I'm so pleased that you bounce back so quickly. Now, on your social channels, I'm interested about the kind of relationship that you have with your audience. Obviously, there's uh, there's a, it's a two way conversation. You know, you obviously now realise that the uh, there's an opportunity to sort of you know shift the dial a bit, sort of have these slightly more grown up conversations, whether it be about sustainability, whether it goes politically into some areas mm. as well. So, just talk to me a little bit about that kind of two way conversation that you you have with your community that are global exactly it is a particularly interesting thing especially when i'll get points of view and things which i'm not necessarily prepared for or hadn't occurred to me it does feel a little strange because i think who am i to project my opinions to the world um, and the way i think but then again i'm just being honest and being myself really and it is a two-way conversation, and it has meant that there has been some pushback occasionally, um, for example, especially during lockdown. And, you know, there were the Black Lives Matter protests, and then there were the anti-vaxxers, and then, of course, um, you, you know, with, uh, with Our Late Majesty's passing and everything, there's always something happening which is creating some sort of turmoil. Mm -hmm. Basically, instead of kowtowing to sort of a pressure, it's kind of that thing of going, well, no, this is what I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, this is what, you know, and after all, it's my channel, my page, my rules. Yeah, totally. And, You're your own and editor. Exactly. And if you don't like it, the unfollow, unfollow button exists, you know. <laughs> it's easy. You know, and, and, and people are moaning, you know, so it's funny. Every time I post anything with my boyfriend or whatnot, um, I'll lose thousands of followers. All the time, really? Yeah, yeah. But because people assume, people assume that uh, I dress this way, so I'm very old, traditional English, and very you know a certain way certain, about things, particularly necessarily straight. Perhaps. Yes, yes. Oh, the the amount of people who are shocked every time, and I'm thinking, for goodness' sake. Um, but but <laughs> here I am in my sort of Regency <laughs> yeah, yeah, floor yeah. length. Like. Exactly. But but then again, this would have been the outfit it, of absolutely. a straight man of the time. Absolutely. But, um, and, and what's interesting is that through this, I've gotten all sorts of messages from people saying that I've inspired them to do this or inspired them to do that. Or some people... Um, You've had a few marriage proposals, I've I had understand. several <laughs> marriage proposals. <laughs> so that's almost like falling in love with you from this sort of your, your it's, grid. It's bizarre. It, it is. But the internet's a weird place. But I suppose it's of. sort of like Prince Charming. You know, it's mm -hmm. that kind of yes, fairy tale. Yes, yes. You know, you create they, this visual. They of don't this see me as me. They kind of. traditional yeah. image of the sort of, you know, mm. knight in shining armour or the kind of classic. Exactly. I mean, when you look at, you know, the general shape of menswear, here we are in 2023, what observations do you have and what advice do you give to our listeners who are thinking that they might like to start to explore something a little bit more creative, something that probably carries less guilt in regards to sustainability and probably a need for being a little bit more flamboyant? Yeah, uh, I'd say that history is always a fun one to look at because then you have a good anchor for your eccentricities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can go, oh, can I wear that with that? And it's like, well, if it was good enough for the Duke of Buckingham, it's fine <laughs> for me. So there's that kind of thing. But also just don't be afraid to take that little jump. You see a pair of pink and orange 70s flares. Try them out. You know, don't don't be afraid. Because after all, clothing should be fun. 
Um, or, well, it should be comfortable. And comfortable doesn't just mean slovenliness or slouching about. It means if you're comfortable in it. That's the important thing. So if you wear something and you feel good about it, which is interesting. When I talk to lots of men at Ascot, for example, they say, mm. oh, I feel great. I look great. Oh, I wish I could wear this more often. And I'm like, no one's stopping you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Don't hold it just for one week a year. Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's all this kind of eccentricity and style which is completely open. So it's basically a case of don't be afraid, explore, and remember that we're in a different time now where everything's on record. So if you messed up and made horrible looks and everything back in the 80s, there's very little evidence of it. <laughs> but but then now it's kind of like, okay, fine, but what's the worst that can happen? Someone says, oh, you look a bit daft. You know, as long as you're fine. You're enjoying yourself. Exactly. It really doesn't matter. And I exactly. guess the sort of gender fluidity conversation Completely. is quite interesting Completely. as well in the way of, like, you know, historical clothing and, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of power game that comes in for both men and women mm-hmm. to explore previous sort of, yeah. you know, uh, periods within yeah. historical clothing. And, and, and the queer community at the moment is particularly interesting uh, sort of as like a microcosm of fashion because it's driving fashion in one way because you have um, men wearing women's clothing, women wearing men's clothing or, you know, people just wearing clothes. I think that's basically what it comes down to. Clothes are there to be worn, so wear them regardless, um, which is wonderful. And there have been some amazing people doing some really interesting things with their own personal style. But thing is, all of the evolution they're having in their own personal style is actually all being documented and they're not being allowed to kind of do it in the isolation when they can work it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And in that process of being able to work it out for yourself and what you want, mm. everyone else is sh- shouting with an opinion because it's up there on social media. So someone will say, this looks good, that doesn't look good. And then that brings in the whole thing of self-consciousness. So basically, don't listen to what other people have to say when it comes to whatever you're wearing because after all, it's just cloth you're throwing over your skin. Exactly. <laughs> and clothes to have fun with. You know, Precisely. it's like a, it's like the most incredibly powerful tool just to articulate how you feel that day. Exactly. Um, and when I'm interested just to sort of close, like looking at your trajectory in the way of, you know, it's an exciting time. You know, you, you've had this idea and this passion and this drive to dress a certain way. It's now your actual career. It's your half a million global following. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, it's your soapbox to have an opinion about certain beliefs and values that you hold very dear. You know, in and especially this new appetite around tailoring for men and women. Exactly. You know, it's a really exciting time for you. I mean, how do, how do you sort of look at the next sort of short-term trajectory? Well, what I'd love to be able to do is to go into uh, some place on the row and some of these heritage companies. Mm. I'm doing some work with um, Hand and Lock as well mm. and go, OK, we've got all this heritage, all this amazing skill and understanding. How can we really project that? You know, how can we revivify yes. some of those understandings and some of those patterns and designs um, to make it sort of more interesting or exciting because after all as much as it's all exciting it doesn't mean that it's going to be boring or it's not going to be traditional mm. so it, it can be everything because what, there's enough people to choose all these things what are the things that you've learned so much because obviously you do a lot of sort of academic research mm. for accuracy yeah and looking <laughs> at all of that sort of skill and craftsmanship from tailoring of old like mm. what are the things that you've learned that you really put into your craft today that are you know really powerful parts mm. of what you offer to your clients well um one thing is piecing is period so making the most of the 
bit of cloth that you've got. Right. And so so that means that the internals could be pieced from different pieces um, and all of that. Like um, I've made uh, a tailcoat for myself, which was the which was made from the offcuts of two naval cloaks that I made. And the inside is actually uh, of 12 different pieces, just, just lining it, you know. So it's that thing of piecing is period. Um, use everything. Yes. Um, no waste. Exactly. Things don't have to be wasted. And there are historical patterns. And there are even some amazing pieces, I think, that Vivian Westwood did, um, where they are from a single piece um, with just a few sort of stitches here and there, which then create it into a garment. So um, I think in terms of the way things are moving forward, I think if we want to be more sustainable, we need to use as much of what we've got. Trends, let's not focus on them quite so much mm-hmm. because they can often be a flash in the pan. Yeah. Um, you don't. It's a distraction and it's not sort of able to support your precisely. values. And then understanding that you don't need a massive wardrobe. Well, I actually, don't have do a you massive, not have a massive wardrobe? I really don't. I was don't. imagining like how many actual wardrobes you physically have. <laughs> well, um, I, bizarrely, I've got a lot more vintage I've collected than than I do things I've made myself, mainly because I'm too busy making things for other people, but mm-hmm. also because I don't need a lot. The thing is, you, you get the right tops and bottoms together and you add a few more waistcoats and all of a sudden you've got 12 different outfits. Yeah, yeah. It's about chopping and changing and mixing and matching. Yeah. And that's one of the joyous things. And that's why I think if you especially for something like Ascot or even modern day suits, if you have a good pair of trousers and a good jacket or tailcoat or something, you can then swap it about with ties, tie pins, collar types, shirt colours, um, and then waistcoats. Yes. You can, you can do anything. And menswear is so exciting when you start to think yes. about it in that way. Exactly. I really enjoy Ascot for that, in the way mm. that each day I, I can have so much fun exactly. with colour stories. Well, one thing I'd love to do, because of course there's Ladies' Day, which is fantastic, I think there should Dog be a... Day. Yes. Yeah, I think there should be like a waistcoat Wednesday. Or, you know, like, let's pick out the best dressed waistcoat from the day or something. Like, it's a lot of effort for the men as well. Yes. Um, and it's a different kind of effort. And I think there needs to be that understanding of... Well, well done. You, yeah. You, you really put your effort yeah. into it. Or going, wow, that's well, an amazing You, you know you'd be winning that yeah. every year. No wonder you want <laughs> us to have that as a category. Now, listen, quick fire questions for okay, you. Okay, go. Uh, detachable collar or detachable cuff? Uh, detachable collar. Okay. Hove or New York? <laughs> Hove. <laughs> really? Okay, brilliant. Savile Row or Notting Hill, Portobello? Oh, Tough one. Mm. Yeah, Savile Row. Brilliant. They'd be pleased for that on the road. Yes, yeah. It's <laughs> a big shout out there for you on the road. Because uh, no one's heard of you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Who are you? Uh, diamonds or emeralds? Emeralds. Nice. Okay, Regency or Victorian? Oh, Regency, certainly. Hands down. Tea or sherry? Tea. <laughs> Tea, yeah. With a little pinky. Yeah. Um, okay, so style icons at the moment, when you're kind of gravitating to maybe talent that are in the public eye mm. or ambassadors of brands or just mm. people that you're looking at from a distance at the moment who yeah. you feel are really having fun with fashion mm. and are really inspirational oh, to that's you. that's what I love. There's um, the amazing, I think it's now 102, Iris in, uh, oh, in New York. Yes, yes thank you. Um, amazing completely embodies the I thing of her. just do what you want. Yeah. I think it's spectacular. Yes. She's uh, all about the accessorising and the massive glasses hugely. and just bold colour. And yeah, she looks amazing. Hugely. Um, I particularly love um, Lil Nas X because I just love what he's doing with 
embracing who he is and and literally not giving a damn, which is spectacular, and also uplifting a lot of early queer and um, starting off designers and really, you know, sticking to his guns with that. I think it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, I think... He, he's probably one of my dream people to dress one day. Yes. Because I think the subversion, especially with the American climate, would be fantastic. Yes. Sandy Powell, um, amazing costume designer, who now is kind of like a friend. So it's that odd thing of going, oh, my God, oh, you're, you're like amazing. Buddies. And now I know you. <laughs> um, that kind of thing never really goes away. The late Duke of Edinburgh. Yes. Uh, an amazing style icon. Um, Christopher Lee, because he's he was always well put together. And, of course, Dracula. So he'll always have a special place in my heart. Um, <laughs> well, a, a lot of the ones I had growing up, John Steed and uh, Hercule Poirot. I loved the perfectionism and the attention to detail that um, David Suchet really brought to Poirot. Yes. And really influenced me hugely starting off. Um, especially with things like a posy holder and things like that, which I found, and then I would have flowers in my own lapel, and and it's that thing of oh, this is great. Um, well, I, I mean, I have to say, you are attention to detail and <laughs> always look so resplendent. Thank you. What a joy to speak to you! Thank you for joining us on Personal. Oh, thank you Threads. for having me. It's fascinating, and really, you know, truly, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, from my sort of sixteen-year-old boy self trying to sort of explore the territory of fashion what a huge inspiration you are to menswear and to all people around the world with your work and what you do so thank you for bringing color and flamboyance and self-expression um and for being such a cracking guest and uh, can we please go shopping sometime soon yes that'd be great (laughs) that lovely to see you absolute pleasure